I honestly believe that the American dream is alive because of immigrants. So if we don't become a better nation and move away from the hypocrisy and the way we contextualize our spaces with immigrants, we're going to be in trouble. If we need these people in our communities, we better make sure that there is a system of integration where they can not live in fear. I mean, 11 million undocumented workers in the most powerful nation in the world is not a mistake. It's public policy. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. This episode features an interview with Hector Sanchez Barba, the CEO and executive director of Mi Familia Vota, which is a multi-state organization that works to register and get out the Latino vote, among other things. Hector has built a prominent career in activism. He's participated in national initiatives and campaigns to empower the Latino community. He was previously the elected chair of the National Hispanic Leadership Agenda, a coalition comprised of the 46 leading national Latino organizations. In Hector, Mi Familia Vota has an experienced leader, and it was great to hear his story and understand some of his current work. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Hector Sanchez Barba at Mi Familia Vota. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Hector, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? My name is Hector Sanchez Barba. I'm the CEO and executive director of Mi Familia Bota. We're a national Latino organization working on building Latino political power in the nation. I also participate in infrastructures like the National Hispanic Leadership Agenda. I'm the chair emeritus over there. And with a number of progressive organizations, I'm on the board of Planned Parenthood, Earth Justice. Uh, obviously, I collaborate very closely with labor. So that's a little bit of the context of, of the work that I do. Yeah, important work. Where did you grow up? I'm from central Mexico, a state called Guanajuato. It's a very historical state and very revolutionary. That's where the independence took place in the revolution, kind of. So that's, that's where I come from. And what was your route to the United States? So my route was um, when I was in my first year of college, I really wanted to study political science. And at the time in Mexico, there were some, um, just a couple of options. And a very close friend of mine mentioned the University of Texas at El Paso. They had a, this particular program where you could pay in-state tuition and you could work 20 hours, etc. So the opportunity to learn English plus being the capacity to study political science. 
that was the initial hook and obviously explore that that option and that was in 1994 26 27 years after I'm I'm, I'm Mexican immigrant still working on these uh, great issues how was the the University of Texas El Paso for you I loved it a Hispanic serving institution that are very, very important, especially in the context of how everybody focuses on these Ivy Leagues and all these spaces. Public education is so important to open opportunities for, in my case, immigrants, low-income communities, um, the people of color, etc., the black universities, Hispanic universities, low-income serving institutions, etc., are so important to really open the the opportunities and possibilities for for everybody. So for me, it was an amazing experience. I remember UT with a lot of uh, just love uh, for the opportunities that I received there. It was also my opportunity to start getting involved in all this the serious issues that I care about, but uh, at a different kind of level. Were you active in politics as an undergraduate? Yes, uh, actually, it's a very interesting story because um, even though I have always been passionate about learning about politics and understanding the complexity of politics. My English at the time, and you can tell by the strong accent that I have, was limited. So it was a little bit difficult to try to understand sophisticated concepts in college and match that with the English part. So I remember the level of frustration just going through this important process of what it is to intellectual curiosity, but at the same time, the limitations of language. So I contextualize this because it really upsets me when I see all the hate crimes against people that speak of other languages or the lack of understanding of how beautiful it is to understand more languages. Is a, those are passages and windows to empathy to other cultures and to really understand more than just a language is literature from other cultures, politics, etc. So the first year was extremely difficult, but immediately I started getting involved in, in school politics, in all the honor society classes, and, and I ran for senator, and, and I was elected senator, etc. So I was involved in, in putting together the binational conference on U.S.-Mexico relations. So I, I was always pretty involved on these issues. What, what did your parents do out of curiosity? What kind of family are you out of? Yeah, my parents have a, 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 always the focus on small businesses. My dad had a, a drugstore in Celaya, Guanajuato. There are a number of very small towns surrounding the city where farmers sometimes come to to the city to to buy these products. And I think my some of the first exposures to just the empathy of social justice and understanding why some people have so much and some others, even though they work so hard, have so little, was when I was exposed in this drugstore of my dad and my mom, and they put me to work at a very early age to really understand the value of work, as my dad says. <laughs> but it was to witness how these farm workers, sometimes they didn't have enough money to pay for their uh, medicine. And I really love the concept of my dad sometimes gave them the, the medicine and just told them, just pay me back when, when you have an opportunity. And it was an element of community. It was an element of just trust and being able to, to do a little bit when you have the opportunity for those that are the most vulnerable in the community. So I always remember that. 
And that's what I try to apply in, in all the work that I do. Was it a decision for you to stay in the United States after college? Did you like have to think, am I going back or am I staying here? What was your first move out of college? It is very important questions to understand the path of the immigrant mind. Obviously, coming to college and, and being involved in all these different issues, uh, you start developing your relationships in in a little bit of the more professional side, which is college. And then what happens after college, I, I immediately start working as a TA. And then uh, my teachers gave me some more serious assignments that I was able to teach some of the classes. And plus, I was involved in the different things uh, college related with the students, etc. So you start developing your more serious professional uh, connections that open doors uh, to other opportunities. So when I graduated from college, um, you get, um, I, I also did the master's in the University of Texas, but when I graduated, you get a one-year working permit. So uh, before I graduated from college, I came to Washington, D.C. one time to visit uh, one of my best friends that we met in college, uh, Osvaldo Zavala. He's a writer and a teacher in, in CUNY University in New York, Manhattan. But at the time, he was a writer for a Mexican magazine called Proceso, that is a political magazine. But I came to D.C. and I knew this was the place where I wanted to be. Literally, I have no doubt that I say, this is where I want to be. It's an amazing city to visit. I hadn't been to it until I came <laughs> down on a train you know, like junior year of college and saw the monuments at night and it's the capital city. It's got something, doesn't it? Actually, I could spend one hour telling you how great DC is. I mean, we get a lot of trash because of the mediocrity of a lot of the politicians, but we can, we don't even have representatives in, co in Congress. So we get all this, but at the same time is you have people from all over the world because of the embassies from international relations, international nonprofits, international progressive organizations, domestic organizations. So it's an, it's an amazing space of combination of people trying to change the world. And I've been fortunate enough to run into a lot of these people. And I really love this city. I've been here for 20 years, so I can say this is, this is the place where I live the most in my life. So. What did you study for your master's program? Political science. Also. So you continued with that. So I was teaching and, and studying at the same time. And what did you focus on a particular thing? Did you write a thesis for that? I wrote a thesis. <laughs> I should check it out again. <laughs> it's, I, let me see if I remember the title. It's the, the role of the welfare state in developing. I don't remember the title, but it was really analyzing the role of uh, states and it was a criticism of the neoliberal policies and how they are destroying a lot of the importance of social security and just what we know works for working people. So uh, I should check it out again. You just remind me. It's, it seems like it might still be relevant. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like you came to D.C. for work, but is that what happened after the uh, master's? After the master's, literally, I had one year working permit. And I drove my car all the way here, and I came to Washington, D.C., no contacts, very little savings, and I started knocking on doors. And it's very interesting that the friend that I mentioned, Osvaldo Zavala, at the time he was dating Sarah Pollack, the daughter of Ron Pollack, 
who is the main guy behind uh, healthcare in the nation, Obamacare, and somebody that is an amazing person. But they allowed me to stay in their house while I found my my place. And I mentioned this story because it's the beautiful things of life of how the circles go around. Because when Obama signed Obamacare in the in the Rose Garden, and this is pure coincidence, I'm sitting right there next to Ron Pollack, almost a 16 to 17 years after I arrived and when he when they hosted me in their house. And I came to DC and I started knocking on doors. And at the time I remember most people will take a coffee with you just to chat and guide you. But I always ask for one thing in the I say, can you give me two emails of people that I can reach out to just for advice? And obviously you say that you met with this person. And one day Arnoldo Ramos, the head of uh, the Council of Latino Agencies in DC. He gave me a job on the spot. He said, I don't have a lot of budget, but let's just see what we can do. And I started working on these issues in a more professional way since there. And I started moving into different positions too, until I arrived here to Mi Familia Bota, brother. Of those positions that you were in before Mi Familia Bota, what was the most important or most interesting? I think... Every position helps you in a unique way to develop in a professional way, in an intellectual way. And it's also good to face some struggles in the different spaces. So it will be hard for me to say eh, that I have a favorite one, but I can, I can contextualize on a couple of challenges. Obviously, as an immigrant, the system over here I, 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 is really interesting that everybody says, oh, come and wait in line and do all these things. We don't have a welcoming system in this nation when it comes to immigrants. I literally had to go to thousands of hoops and all kinds of things following the process to finally get a, a citizenship that I got it three years ago. But I can tell you so many examples in this conversation. Once I was stuck out of the country when I renewed my H-1B, just because there was something that, that didn't match exactly what they wanted to see, and they just left the paper there. I already had a serious job, and I was for six months out of the country until I reached out to a contact that I had at the State Department. I'm saying, I'm sorry, I don't know what to do. Eh, I'm losing my, my apartment. I'm losing my job. I'm losing... Imagine everything that you worked so hard to build, and just because there was an element of bureaucracy to... Yeah. yeah, paperwork. So that's a little bit of the context of how going to work. But if there is one job that I can say that had a lot of influence, obviously, um, I moved from uh, LACLA. I was with the Labor Council of Latin America for 12 years. And at the same time, I was the chair of the National Hispanic Leadership Agenda, the coalition of the most important Latin organizations. I was the youngest in both positions when I joined. So it was amazing to receive those opportunities, but at the same time to be challenged in a unique way to to be able to deliver on on the priorities and the mission of board organizations. Well, it sounds like you not only you know caught the attention of initial hires, but kind of moved on and up. What do you think it was about you that helped you have such a positive trajectory in your career? I want to contextualize it on on what's important for the work and not not so much about myself. But I think is there is a unique opportunity right now to to really bring attention to the most important issues of our nation, which I have no doubt is the huge concentration of wealth that is dangerous, that is historical, 
And the most important thing is to constantly, regardless of the room where you are having conversations, regardless of the places where you are trying to create an impact, making sure that you are constantly reflecting on the most vulnerable voices in our communities, which unfortunately right now, the level of vulnerability has increased in the richest nation in the planet. That's something that is unacceptable, and we need to do much more to change those things. You said you worked at a coalition of important Latino organizations. I'm always interested in sort of the progressive ecosystem. What are the key organizations that are doing the important work? NHLA was a coalition of the 46 national Latin organizations. And this is the space, the infrastructure that builds and presents the public policy agenda on behalf of the Latino community. It is presented to the president, to Congress, and then we build campaigns around those spaces. But that's a very interesting question because when I was the chair, my job was to get everybody together to approve and work these issues by committees. And I can tell you that we we presented the most progressive public policy agenda in the history of the Latino community. But I don't, I don't want to say it's because we're more progressive or more conservative, it was really reflective of the needs of the community. And I say sometimes we use progressive or conservative very loosely, but it's, it's not about those elements. It's about what is needed for the community at the moments that we are facing. And the community is so vulnerable right now that when we talk about education, it was in a very progressive lens, immigration, the economy, labor, etc., reproductive rights for women or the rights of women, LGBTQ issues, environmental issues. So we really cover all these different spaces. So for me to tell you which organizations are critical, it will have to be by each one of those elements. And and what happens when you become chair, you don't want to exclude any of them. So I don't want to go over 46 names right now, brother. I've found this across our whole ecosystem. There's so many organizations does that make sense? Is that the right number? Should there be 100? Should there be three? There should be 500, if you yeah. ask me. Yeah. We need more infrastructures and spaces that are constantly fighting for what is just, for what is right. 46 may seem like a big number, but when you start dividing them on sections, uh, I can tell you, for example, in, in my specific environment right now, that is um, elections and, and voter registration, GOTV, voter education, citizenship. We need many more organizations doing this work in, in, to make sure that we have a more inclusive and a, and, a, and a more perfect democracy. How did you view Mi Familia Vota when you were the chair of this group, which I assume this was one of the 46? Was that, yes. is that true? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, I've been working with and collaborating with my, Mi Familia Vota since for a number of years. I had a very good relationship with them before I came on board. And I actually, when I was chair, they became uh, members and, and I made them the co-chairs of the Civic Participation Committee uh, with Voto Latino, another amazing organization. And both of them, important spaces, Mi Familia Vota, Voto Latino, and other organizations that do civic participation. We have a table of organizations like Maldef Naleo, LULAC. If I start mentioning all there of them, it's the <laughs> <laughs> Hispanic Federation, etc. Amazing organizations where we collaborate, we share strategies, we share um, uh, resources to stretch every single dollar uh, to have the most impact on the communities. How did you 
end up now in your current position, which is CEO and executive director, the leader of Mi Familia Vota? Yeah, I was uh, after more than 10 years at LACLA in, in two terms as chair of NHLA. Obviously, uh, there were some opportunities uh, coming my way and, and this opportunity opened up and there was a transition in this organization of leadership and they reached out. And at some point, how amazing I thought at the time to be in the most important organization with field capacity and fully focusing on, on civic participation. So I say how amazing in the most important election in our history to be able to be part of this team. And from the C4 perspective, which is the most partisan perspective, I remember telling the team and the board, I will wanna have the green light to build the most aggressive campaign in the history of the Latino community against one particular person. And that person was Donald Trump. And we did it, we, we launched a campaign called Basta Trump. Uh, the full focus was to educate the Latino community on the threat that he represented, everything that he did to devastate our community, attack our community, promote hate and violence against our community. And Latinos came to vote in historical numbers. So it was an amazing opportunity. And probably when you ask me the question, what are you the most proud of? It will be probably this campaign to get this monster out of the White House. What sums up to this highly negative view you have that I share of him? Facts. Everything that he did, as I say, I've been fortunate that I understand policy in Washington at all the levels, not only from what we see in the media, but even things that come out to the media. And the impact that he had on our democracy, on our legal systems, on the hate that he promoted, uh, that is still very, very clear in the nation, on the level of exclusions, on and the federal government on the executive orders, I could keep going on, is something that has led a horrible legacy of destruction, destruction of civil rights, human rights, and, and labor rights, something that as a nation uh, we have been developing and we have been becoming better and better with historical fights that were led by women, by the civil rights movements of the 60s, by the beautiful legacy that I'm so proud of as an immigrant. And I learned of many communities. I'm fortunate enough that I was training, organizing by an African-American lady that was organizing in the 60s. And I learned so much. And I'm so proud that I was able to, to learn and, and practice some of these beautiful things for change and a better democracy. And this person was literally destroying everything that came in on his way. And, but that's the beautiful thing about democracies, that democracies evolve. And I'm really hoping that now uh, we learn from this, probably the one of the worst mistakes, or I will call it the worst mistake that we made as a nation, as a democracy. And we never, ever have somebody like him that is so destructive ever in the White House. And I commit to do everything in my capacity to keep fighting for protect our democracy. Tell me a little about the Basta Trump effort. What was the scale of it? What did you do? How did it make a difference? Yeah, the Basta Trump campaign, obviously, the C3 part is the nonpartisan part that we do in the organization, which is voter registration, GOTV, citizenship, anything to, 
uh, on civic participation that is a direct correlation between being a stronger democracy and fighting voter suppression, which is making it harder for people just to get access to vote. That's the element. The second one is the C4 part, which is the more political part. And from that perspective, I remember this meeting in Washington, D.C., a couple of months after I became um, the CEO of this organization. We had a retreat of, of state directors and some of the leaders of the organization. And it was so amazing to see everybody in this room. And we all had one common goal. We were at a, at a room meeting at the AFL-CIO looking at the White House. And everybody in that room was either immigrant or the children of immigrants. And the stories that we were sharing of direct impact, this is not something abstract of, oh, he's bad. The direct stories of how painful it was in the last three or four years that could be linked to the policies and everything that he was promoting was so personal that my personal dream, it was fully aligned with the dream of all my colleagues, which is uh, not only make this a better democracy and build Latino political power, but get this person out of out of office because it's not only a threat for our families, but it's a threat for our democracy. So we start dreaming and dreaming big in that room. And we wanted the goal was to build the most aggressive campaign in the history of the Latino community with a focus on this person. So we start doing uh, elements of a lot of um, education in the community. There was a lot of misinformation and, and, and fear promoted in English and in Spanish in our communities. Uh, related to this particular election, uh, you know a lot of the stuff and lies about socialism and how anybody that was opposing Trump uh, was a socialist, even to information lying about the days where the elections were taking place. We saw a lot of border intimidation in the nation against uh, the community. So our campaign had pieces in all these different spaces and we had our most successful year in the history of the organization. Uh, we had $16 million campaign in 10 different states from uh, Florida, Texas, Arizona, Colorado, Nevada, California. And we extended operations last year initially to Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and, and Michigan. And what was so beautiful, and that's how we closed the year, uh, after the election was over and we won, or I can say we kick him out of office. There was an important election in, in Georgia to be defined. So I immediately start calling uh, the local organizations and I say, how can we help? We don't want to just go in and, and do or repeat or anything that you're already doing. So these Latino uh, organizations say, we urgently need field operations. And that's something that we did early on obviously with the highest levels of, of protections on PPE and trainings, et cetera, for our staff. So I send our best people for the communities that make sense for Georgia, mostly Mexicans and Puerto Ricans. So I send the best people that I had for field operations there, and we hire local people to be able to do the operations. We knock on 50,000 doors. We did a lot of texting, calling, et cetera, the full, the full campaign. But that's a little bit of the context of how we also contributed in a little bit on, on that election in Georgia. And both Georgia and the national election, very close. And so, you know, you probably can feel pretty confident that if you weren't doing this, it might have gone the other way. I'm totally confident that uh, 
the role that the Latino community played in the last election defined the results in the presidential and in, in a lot of different elections, the, the Latino bodies so critical and important. And as we keep growing, we're going to become much more central to the national definition of politics. There was a lot of news right after the election about the Latino vote. And early reporting is notoriously bad. It's pre-real analysis. But there were definitely places in the country where the Latino vote surprised commentators and was less pro-Biden than, I guess, they anticipated. What do you know now about what was going on in some of those areas that were more disappointing? Let me start by saying how concerning it is the way the media covers particular groups. I cannot tell you how many interviews I did from national outlets on a particular little town with a small number of uh, Latinos voting for Trump. And that was the national story. But I want to ask the general question. How many national stories do we have literally saying that the majority of white voters voted for Trump? That's a dangerous national story that we should be very concerned about. And I don't see a single one or the context of anyone. And I read most of the stories covering the elections. So why do we focus on this? And it's important. What's wrong with white people is the real question. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, after four years, we shall have a really deep analysis of how come the majority of white voters voted for Trump. Uh, men and, and, and women, that's a dangerous story for the future of our democracy and nation. But I want to contextualize it because we need to pay attention to those kind of stories. But at the same time, when we're discussing the Latino vote, it has to be in the right context. It has to be the story of Arizona that it was covered in a lot of different spaces and how decisive it was to define and how powerful is that story of how they organize on the ground the Latino and immigrant community after uh, uh, 10 to 12 years ago, with SB 1070, the most anti-immigrant piece of legislation over there, after having Arpaio, the worst sheriff, anti-immigrant sheriff in the nation, after having some extremist voices over there similar to Trump, that the, orga- the community organized, and Mi Familia Bogota was central part of that, and literally changed the political perspective of that state. And we have examples like that that are so amazing and beautiful, and we need to constantly reflect on how good this is because it's a reflection of democracy that we want. It's certainly the case that anti-immigrant moves in California were a big part in making that state solidly democratic from a state that we used to have to fight. Yeah, we used to have huge fights for the governorship. Yeah. Now, having said that, it's important to also recognize that there is much more that the political parties have to do. They take the, the Latino vote for granted. When I was chair of NHLA, we did a study on on the serious underinvestment from the most important infrastructures in the nation on on Latino democracy. Uh, For example, foundations spend only 1% of their budget on the Latino community. Political parties historically have taken, and I'm talking about both, the Latino vote for granted. So it's important to make sure that when there is investment, the Latino vote comes out in historical numbers, we know that as an organization because we see it. We know what happens when we help people become citizens and then we register them to vote and then we help them, literally help them or drive them to the polls to vote. 
and then we engagement in participating in local politics or in school boards, etc. It's an amazing example of how beautiful it is when we really thoroughly invest in building our democracy and not only do it for a transactional reason when when you have a swing state or when there is a critical election, but invest in this in the long term. And that's, that's why the role of Mi Familia Bota is so important. What else do you do? What are the other key things that your group is up to? We connect everything that we do in terms of these programs to important policy decisions. For example, we work on immigration, environment, uh, jobs, and women's rights, uh, etc. So we have our policy priorities, and we try to connect those uh, two spaces. And at the local level, also, we're trying to make sure that we build that political power, that we connect everything that we're doing to getting uh, Latinos and Latinas elected or to office that have those progressive values and that are going to be pushing for these different spaces. But the center of what we do is to build progressive Latino political power in the community to make sure that we have a seat at the table. Historically, uh, this seat hasn't been there, and we're not going to wait any longer to be able to have these possibilities. We're raising our voices, we're organizing. And we're demanding what we deserve as a community. We're almost 20% of the population, and we have been structurally and historically excluded from all these spaces of power. And we're saying we're not allowed this to happen anymore in any spaces. We're the most underrepresented in Congress, in the Senate, in, in corporate boards, in schools. I mean, anything that represents power, we have been historically excluded. So we're trying to contribute to change that. There are people on the other side, on the conservative side, on the Republican side, who are also working to mobilize Latinos. How much do you run up against that and how do you understand the success of those efforts? Well, we know that what you're referring to is money that comes from the Koch brothers. And we know who the Koch brothers are, somebody that have unfortunately promote a lot of the different spaces they funded the beginning of the Tea Party and we know what happened. I, I, I will see a direct correlation between the Tea Party and all this right-wing movement to why we had Donald Trump in the White House. There have been some instances in which they had some success in trying to get the Latino community from the religious side or, or the reproductive right side, etc. to ask them to vote conservative. But uh, Again, my analysis is not about being progressive or, or conservative. It is what is right for our community. And when you present them with issues, with policy priorities, you can really tell that the Latino community is a working class community that strongly believes in, in, in spaces that protect workers, in spaces that give opportunities, uh, oppose the exploitation of people. I mean... There are a lot of people in our community that literally have three jobs and they cannot even afford an apartment or just the basics. So that's what is so important for us. How much is your work in collaboration with immigrant groups from other parts of the world, people who've been around longer in this country? How much is this like aligned with other efforts that are going on? Very strongly aligned, and I believe in collaboration. I believe in spaces of, of unity and, and trying to exchange ideas, intel, or even uh, extend our dollars on the ground. 
as I mentioned, we have a table called the National Latino Civic Engagement Table uh, of nine national Latino organizations where we come together. Even though in many cases we do exactly the same work, but we try to find ways of how do we collaborate? How, why do we need to knock twice on a door if we can just try to compare ideas and programs and see if we can do it together so we save some of that money invested in the community? The messaging that we have in the community, how do we protect our communities at a time when we are under attack? So there is a very strong collaboration with the immigrant rights movement, with the Latino community, with, uh, as I say, I'm very fortunate that I've been very close to the African-American leadership and community. Uh, we've been working, especially now that our Asian community, API community, has been seeing a horrible increase on, on, on racial attacks, something that is also unfortunately been happening in a number of other communities. Collaboration there. I'm being very fortunate that I come from the labor movement, so very strong collaboration with the NER movement. I believe in in these kinds of collaboration to to move a common agenda forward. Unfortunately, the 2020 election did not come close to killing off the threat from the far right. We got a ton of work in front of us to keep winning. And in fact, if patterns held, we would probably lose the House and maybe the Senate in the next election and and quite possibly the presidency and the presidency could be to Trump again, or it could be to someone like Trump uh, who maybe even has fewer character flaws and could get more things done. So it's very dangerous time. What's the plan? Everyone mobilized so hard to get Trump out. I worry a little bit that we can reach that peak level again, but we're going to need to right away. I, I predict. I believe in learning from history and our mistakes. I really hope there is a better and clearer understanding of what Trump represented in all the voices and people that mirror exactly who he is and what he believes. I mean, what we saw in Congress, what we've seen all over the nation are people that, unfortunately, what they're promoting is full of irrationality. I can't wait to have rational arguments with conservative voices, which I love. Um, it's, it's normal, it's, it's healthy. But anybody that tries to make a case for Trump literally is, is full of irrationality, hate, and, and, and misconceptions. So we need to make sure that, that we keep organizing and educating and, and mobilizing because they are hurting themselves. A lot of these people that are supporting Trump, when you really understand policies, they are showing themselves from the food, on education, on basic rights, on taxes, on a lot of policy issues. I mean, you put together a $16 million campaign. Can you come up with that again with the, you know, with people maybe not recognizing the stakes or, or you know, feeling a little bit too relaxed? That's a very important question. And I'm hoping that we can continue building this political power, understanding that if we don't do this, we can continue seeing more and more people like Arpaio, like Trump, like a lot of these extremist voices that are full of of hate and they don't have real ideas that are helping our nation or democracy. So I really believe that there is no other option. If we see another Donald Trump that can get reelected or eight years of somebody like that, I really wonder what will happen to the institutions of our democracy and to our democracy itself. I, I do too. One of the things that is under attack right now 
as you're well aware, is the voting rights, including of your community, quite directly, and going on in state after state, most recently Georgia. What is your role going to be in fighting things that are they're trying to make it more difficult to vote? This is not something new. This is something that came with the inception of our nation and democracy, literally saying only white male with property can vote. And little by little, we have been winning fights in history through women in the front lines and, and fighting for the right to vote for women. Then African-Americans that play a central role, Latinos fighting for the right to vote. So it's not something new. Even up to like the 50s, entire communities, uh, women of color couldn't vote. It was not in 29 when all women got the, the right to vote. It was white women. And then uh, African-Americans with the, the poll taxing. And so it's not something new that we have seen in, in our nation, but it's unacceptable that in this day, this century, with all this technology, uh, with all these advancements, we are still literally, openly, excluding or making it really hard for certain communities to participate in the democratic process. And we cannot allow that. Nobody should be waiting six hours in line under the sun, like I witnessed in, in a, in a low-income Puerto Rican community in Orlando eh, in Obama's re-election, when 15 minutes away from there, there was an affluent white community that only had to wait 15 minutes in line. I mean, just the basic questions when I tell my Mexican friends when I go home and I say, why do you guys vote on a Tuesday? And I make the rational case and it's like, why? Or why is this not a holiday? Like in the rest of the world and the democracies. Or why do you have to exclude this and come up with all these ideas that exclude people? It doesn't make sense. And we need to evolve as a democracy, and that's one of the beautiful things of democracy, that democracies evolve, democracies become better, democracies can become more inclusive, and that's part of what we're trying and hoping to contribute to as an organization and me personally as, a, as an immigrant. Is there a problem with not having enough influence in the Republican Party, which to me right now is kind of a sick institution? We really need to fix that party too, right? Is there any role for for you guys in that? It's dangerous, we, we see. It's dangerous that we only have two parties and one of those parties decided, not a single voice of that party decided to raise and oppose the extremism and everything that we saw from Trump and others. That's very dangerous and that's scary. For us, it's about, from the nonpartisan perspective, building that political power and educating about those elements and on the C4 part, really highlighting the, the threats that we see in spaces when we see the Trumps of the world. But that requires a total reflection as a nation. What happens when one party literally allows itself to be taken by a small group of extremist right-wingers promoting conspiracy and theories and, and, and violence and a lot of this craziness that we have seen? And there was not a single person that I can mention that really decided to stand up in that party and make it a personal goal to say, this is not who we are. They constantly mention Lincoln. There was nobody that inside this party that say, you know what? We're the party of Lincoln, the party that believes certain things. And we're going to oppose this monster and these people. And it's, it's dangerous. 
There were some people, but they were very few, you know. But the few people that you mentioned, nobody make it a personal uh, goal to create a revolution inside this party to oppose this element. Maybe they raised once to oppose a bill. Maybe they raised once to oppose one of the stupidities and extremism that uh, Trump constantly promoted. But they didn't make it, or a couple of them, and why not? Why not to organize and say, this is not who we are and we're going to protect our party, which is very dangerous. Hector, is there a question that I failed to ask you that I should have? I think we covered a lot of ground, brother. <laughs> this has been an amazing conversation. You uh, you made me reflect on some of my personal path of, of being here and we reflected on politics. So it was a, it was an amazing conversation. Well, maybe can you connect that a little bit more? Uh, because for me, it's very moving to talk to a man who came to school not knowing much English in El Paso and then heads up a key institution. To me, that's like that's another great, important success story that America has many of still. Like, what does it mean to you now to be in that position? Yeah, I reflected a lot on what it means to be an immigrant. I reflected a lot on what do we bring to the table. I reflected a lot on these things. I honestly believe there is something unique about immigrants. And we have seen this through the story of the nation. There is something unique about an immigrant and knowing that you're going to put everything on the table. You're going to give it all your all. I see it with the people that works, undocumented people that works in, in the front lines, day to day, just dreaming that they can give a better future to their children or sending all their money back to their children. I honestly believe that the American dream is a lie because of immigrants. So if we don't become a better nation and move away from the hypocrisy and the way we contextualize our spaces with immigrants, we're going to be in trouble. If we need these people in our communities, we better make sure that there is a system of integration where they can not live in fear. I mean, 11 million undocumented workers in the most powerful nation in the world is not a mistake. It's public policy. And we need to stop being hypocritical, exploiting these people and welcoming them in our uh, legal systems because it's the perfect system of exploitation. You have all these people working in the front line, literally providing food for our families, for our people, taking care of our children, making our loans. I mean, everything that we need and we're so comfortable that we want to keep them in that level of vulnerability and we just deport them when anybody either raises their voice or when you, we don't need them anymore. That's unacceptable and we should be ashamed as a nation. I agree with you. We have immigrants that are important, ranging from people dealing with yards to people doing high tech to people starting companies, the whole spectrum of employment. We need these people. We need the, the new energy. The Biden administration, how do you feel about the start of this? Yeah. Well, and just to finalize the element on immigrants, especially during COVID, literally when the entire nation shut down and we all could stay in our houses working from home or doing whatever we can because we, we have that luxury, entire sectors of the economy were kept by immigrants, undocumented immigrants that were exposed 
to all the situation with COVID. And that's why in the community, we have the highest numbers of deaths and exposure and, and infections. And we need to thank these people. Uh, and we've been promoting immediate legalization to all these people that have been in the front lines, keeping our economy going. Now, when it comes to the Biden administration, um, we've been engaging with him since the election. I had a town hall meeting with him a year before he was elected, in which I really pushed him to give us a straight answers on, and commitments. The first day I have to be, uh, there are many things that I can still criticize from any administration because I'm an advocate and that's my role, but there are a number of very important things that I saw from this administration early on on immigration, a number of executive orders immediately that we haven't seen before. We never saw with the Obama administration. Right now, we're putting a lot of pressure and we have a lot of hopes to make sure that we're working on everything related to the Dreamers, TPS holders. We saw that announcement with Venezuelan TPS, very important with farm workers. But the most important part is we need legalization or, or a path to legalization too all these people so uh, from that perspective we're working on but there were a number of very good signs from the beginning in in everything related to the economy as particularly covid obviously uh, with the inclusion of immigrants and undocumented immigrants to the response and access to vaccines etc it's a very promising space but as i say uh, our role is to be advocates a strong advocates aggressive advocates and we're not going to continue putting pressure on this administration in Congress and all the politicians out there to make sure that we hold them accountable to to our priorities in the nation and the national priorities. Hey, have you ever thought of running for office yourself? <laughs> that's a, that's a, I live in DC, brother, so our options are extremely limited over here. Uh, but I think everybody, every single person at some point in their lives should ask yourselves, should I run for office? Because when we did a campaign called Latinas Represent, Latinas are the most underrepresented when it comes to any level of office. And that was one question when we asked, why you never consider running for office? And it's like, nobody ever asked me to. So I think everybody and all the listeners and everybody in, in low-income communities or communities of color should ask yourself the question, should I run for office at any level? And I think the answer is yes for everybody. Well, it's been an honor to talk to you today. Anything else you want to say? No, thank you for doing this important work and always uh, contextualizing these uh, analysis and ideas for to make sure that we're having important conversations in the nation. That was Hector Sanchez Barba. He's at mifamiliavota.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.